Welcome to Screen Talk, IndieWire's weekly podcast. I'm Eric Cohn, the deputy editor and chief critic, joined as always by our editor-at-large, Ann Thompson. And Anne, we are a week out of Sundance, still trying to get back our normal sleeping patterns. It's not an easy <laughs> task. After all that, how are you holding up back in I'm LA? okay. I, I put in a couple of long, long hours. I, I you know, people like are falling around us like flies and, you know, getting f- the flu, this dreadful flu. So I, I, I'm just sort of crossing my fingers and hoping my flu shot is, is helping me uh, stay safe. Yeah, it's funny. I mean, when you're in an environment like Sundance where every minute of every day is being measured by how you're spending your time, paying attention to these movies, a, a never-ending news cycle in this kind of wild environment, you kind of enter this this different mindset altogether. It's almost like a different reality in which you know you just kind of live the film industry all the time, and you emerge hopefully with, irrespective of what happens to you physically, a more robust understanding of new movies that are coming out, things that are going on in the market, and a lot of a real sense of what we're going to be talking about for the next six months. What I thought was interesting this year. And I think we should we should talk about it a little bit. Is that I thought it was a very good year programming wise. I saw a lot of movies that I was excited about, and the conversations inevitably hewed closer to conversations about the market and why there were no big sales. There were some big sales. They weren't huge. Ten million was, was a, pretty the bit. Pretty was, much there was a, so. There's yeah, this new combine good. that we that we're going to be getting into in a minute, which is the Thirty West slash Neon buying out the Chinese, buying Neon, and they were the big buyers, and we, we talked about this last week, but the, the Netflix and Amazon not buying, when we got to the end of the festival and sort of looked at the bigger picture, that's really significant. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's coming off of the previous year when the biggest buyer at the festival was Netflix at the very end. Earlier in the festival, you had uh, Amazon, the big thick, you know, and then it paid off pretty well. And they of bought, you know, they it. bought a movie that didn't get to the Oscars, which which was City of Ghosts. And if and you could argue that although Mudbound did get a few nominations, it wasn't quite what what Netflix may have had had in mind. And they, well, they I don't think it was unsuccessful. Spent a lot. The question is, so they say and it did well. Uh, by the way, yeah, I mean, look, it, for them. And it, Certainly, vis- the visibility was there, I think and so. th- and it got some nominations. So there was progress to be made there. But that that sale for Mudbound happened way at the end of the festival. It was more money than anybody was willing to spend. And I think on some level, that narrative was very misleading because now Netflix is entering this year. I mean, you've written about this. It's a very interesting moment because here's a studio that has greenlit so many projects. It doesn't necessarily need to buy stuff. Right. So I wrote about Netflix Indie and did the math and sort of figured out that they're doing like 25 movies in the next year coming out. And on the doc side, I don't know if this is accurate, but somebody was saying that they're like releasing a movie a week, you know, on an enormous level. There's a huge operation uh, churning out the marketing and, and, and the awareness for these documentaries. And the, in some ways, you could argue that the narrative side is still catching up, although they did very well with Bright on the big uh, original content side. So there's two, there's several different pockets. There's the doc side, the big Stu- Scott Stuber, Bright, Will Smith kind of level the you know, movies. And then you have, but they have smaller ones too. Apparently, the Stupid and Feudal Gesture was their movie, not 
indie movie. So the indie side has a lot of small movies. Some of them you've never ever heard of, but um, they they had uh, the one that that gave me their attention really got my attention on this was that they had greenlit the uh, Tamara Jenkins Private Life. But but they they're making so many movies and have so many movies coming out. They didn't need to buy anything. Well, and and look, A twenty four had two very well received movies at South uh, at Sundance with uh, Eighth Grade, which was uh, the the I would say most successful like like, traditional crowd pleaser, very good, very very endearing, strong first feature in in the competition, and then the midnight film Hereditary, which is going to be a big hard best reviewed movie. Actually, I mean it's it's just really delivers, and Tony Collette gives a good performance. I think the the thing with that movie is expectations maybe a little too high on some level, but it'll be it as good as the witch, if not better. It, no, it's I would say well, it's actually more accessible than the witch because the witch is kind of this weird period piece in the middle of nowhere. This is a, a creepy haunted house movie in suburbia, so it's more familiar. So it's closer to like a poltergeist kind of a thing. So it really could be a or big the sixth deal. Sense itself speaking, something of like that collect. exactly. So, so you have these these two movies from A24. A24 didn't need to go buy a bunch no, of stuff. No, they were and, good. You know. Right. So the question is, is, well, is the idea is the same reaction that. we talked about before. It's the pre-buying instead of... And there was another movie, which I realized, uh, that, that, that I believe uh, got picked up before the festival and then taken out of of the of the uh, festival by one of by Netflix or or Amazon I forgot right. which but it's right. a movie that was supposed to be in and then they took it out after they bought it because they don't necessarily need that platform yeah I mean it, that that's a whole other conversation is is what festivals actually do for a, a company once they already have the film and can sell well, it on their own terms. marketing launches that it's occur. a yeah it but it's a very advantage. unpredictable environment and none of this but is the other, not but let me bring up one more thing the, the other thing that struck me this time you know looking back more clearly at the whole at the whole picture as you you and a bunch of the other folks from IndieWire you um, looked at South by Southwest lineup. There's going to be some great keynotes. There's going to be some great speakers and TV and lots of stuff, which tends to take more uh, of the attention than the actual films at South by, as good as they often are. And they do book about 14 or so films from Sundance. I overheard a conversation with Janet Pearson and and Trevor Groth at at Sundance while she was sort of telling him which of the titles she was most interested in and very excited by. But the thing is, this Sundance is more like a South by because there well, weren't any big know. Oscar contenders coming out of it. There I, I mean, I, any I big understand titles. what you mean by that, but I but I think they're they're fundamentally different in a couple of ways. One is that just from a from a, as a climate. Sundance is, you know, it's got its institute, it's got a different sort of communal element to it, and all of these filmmakers who are kind of in Sundance are either it's new talent kind of figuring out their way for the first time, or it's established talent, you know, kind of creating this spot at the top of the year where they can launch it, whereas South By, I think, is more of sort of like integrating these films into a broader kind of cultural conversation. I'm not sure what have. that means. What because are you saying? Are you there's saying there's a wider... Well, no, let me like, tell you what I mean. I want to know. Is it, it a wider kind no, of it's not, audience? It's not about, yeah, it is a wider, but it's more of a, more of a realistic representation of what uh, the contemporary media landscape looks like, because you have the interactive crowd, you have a music crowd, you have 
people who are just kind of there to network and the movies kind That's of... That's the experience of South middle. By, which I'm not talking yes. about, which is a very valuable and Well, I'm fabulous, trying to draw a distinction I'm talking about here, the film I, festival programming itself. Well, the film festival program, I, I think I'm the saying the South two by, were more aligned and more alike this year than usual. I, I don't know if... I mean, about I think the... the scale the of the movies next, and the, the potential section, audience for the movies. The next section at South By or at Sundance has, has always felt a bit like it has a South By flavor to it. But if you look at the movies that played in the U.S. competition at Sundance, they may not have been deemed market-ready in the way that A Big Sick was, but they, weren't, they were still sort of bigger. Like a movie like Kindergarten Teacher was, you know, great Maggie Gyllenhaal performance, maybe not an easy sell, because it's basically about the, this weird kindergarten teacher who steals her students' uh, poetry, and it's like, I don't know how you turn that into a big commercial sell, but it's not a South By movie either. It's, it definitely felt like there was still a distinction there. It's a bigger festival in terms of the volume of movies and the number of movies that are kind of, like, reaching you're, to the... You're purposefully, I think you're purposefully missing missing my point. But but the but the idea here is is that is that South by now has an opportunity to amplify in a good way. Uh the a lot of the movies that are moving from one festival to the other. Some well, of them they unsold, only take, Well they the only way. take um they only take up, up to fourteen movies. Yeah, I know. So That's what I said. There's a lot of it but there but there's it's South by which you know it's like just announced its lineup and has more films that they're going to be adding has a whole competition section that's mostly first time films or films uh, from, you know, filmmakers working on a, on a much smaller scale. Mm -hmm. um, but it also yeah, doesn't. I was on, add, I've been on the jury there. It was fun. But I, but I, I mean, there's, it's not an industry festival really in the same way that Sundance is. There's not a lot of buyers that go out. a lot more films that are actually designed, you know, often directed by someone like Seth Rogen or starring someone like Seth Rogen or James Franco or that level of, of sort of comedic, broader audience. Uh, what, what film there this, this time would be equivalent? Well, there's, well I, what you're talking about is that there's usually one or two More films. More of a market that studi launch, the studios, The studios used to launch there, and, and there, there's, there's a couple of them this time, and there's a, there's a TV section as well. So, um, you know, this year you have uh, the opening night film, which is uh, directed by John Krasinski, is a Paramount film, and um, it's, uh, the name is Escaping Me. Give me just one second, because I don't want to. Sounds too, a Quiet Place, uh, which is sort of a supernatural film, a very different uh, film for him. And so there's a couple of studio films, and then there's uh, Jordan Peele's Tracy Morgan show and stuff like that. So that you'll never see something quite like that launching at, at Sundance in the same sort of way. So that distinction is kind of interesting. But just to go back to Sundance for a second, I would say that what I liked about the fact that that you know this conversation about no big sales is it allowed us to look more at the intricacies of the movies. I mean, the, the films that I was seeing that I really liked would never be selling big, but that's been the case in my Sundance experience for sure. over a decade. No, you've always made that argument, but but also not having any. I'm not talking about who bought or who didn't buy. I mean, we took two of the big buyers out completely, uh, but but Fox Searchlight didn't buy either. And, you know, um, there there weren't. You know, it's it's a it's an interesting question of of also there not being you know a movie that clearly was heading for the Oscars that would have fueled a buy. And and right. since there weren't any. 
really. Um, the one, you know, the, the other than ones that had already been bought, really. Uh, Colette got sold, but I, I'm, I'm, I think it's possible that Colette would be an Oscar contender at the end of the day, or, uh, but it's on, it's not a, a given. It's, it, it, it's in the zone, but it would ha a lot of good things would have to happen, uh, and, and, and Kira Knightley would have to be deemed, you know, a well, best actress but candidate. The point that I'm trying to make about this is just that Sundance doesn't necessarily need to be a platform for awards movies in the way that these fall festivals have to be. If anything, it seems like that conversation distracts from paying attention to movies that are worth talking about for other reasons. I mean, the films that I like to see are whether it was Madeline's Madeline or Mandy in the Midnight Section, will never be Oscar movies. And they shouldn't be. That would be an unnecessary amount of pressure. So maybe there's... And these movies are going to come out and have lives in theaters, and the filmmakers are probably going to continue to make interesting movies. But that conversation, the lack of Oscar movies at Sundance, seems to me like a red herring when we're talking about whether or not you know the festival had currency this year in our culture. You know, like I thought it was a good year, but I'm, but I'm not totally convinced that a good year at Sundance has to bring... It's a kind of interesting because this, this, this leads into another thing that we, we wanted to talk about this week. It might not seem like it's immediately related, but with the first reactions of Black Panther coming in, I was thinking back to when Fruitvale, or as it was called at the time, Fruitvale Station, launched at Sundance. And you could tell, like, here was a guy who could very clearly make a movie that works. Like, every beat of this movie was so well-timed it was so well sort of and he also had the benefit of having been through the the workshop process at sundance right yeah he was sort of like he was ryan coogler was very much a discovery of of sundance yeah, he was in the same labs as david lowry as i recall who was there with ain't them body saints the same year so they've and always now, felt very supportive of him but right. then he broke out with creed and showed that he could do a really big commercial movie with sylvester stallone and fight scenes and everything yeah. else and that's and what made it creed possible look, for him to be hired for for Black Panther. Well, that's what I was going to say. I mean, this makes Creed look like a mid-sized movie by comparison. Well, it's a it's huge that. movie. That's what's so moving about it. When you see the movie and you see how big it is and the scale of it and the budget of it and the, the universe that's been created and the mythology of it, and you, and you recognize that it's coming out of Africa, this extraordinary culture, Wakanda, you know, yes, it, it fulfills a certain kind of, of fantasy for, 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 for people, but it's also long overdue, so long overdue, so extraordinarily long overdue. Yeah, I know. Well, it's, what's so fascinating about it, it is that there's literally two white characters in this movie, one of whom is a bad guy, not a big spoiler alert. Andy Serkis, you know, very second. entertaining. And, and, the other, and the other guy who's Martin Freeman is basically like spends most of the time looking terrified. And anytime he says something, everyone kind of looks at him like, why are you talking right now? And it's such it's an great. interesting role reversal from a cultural I standpoint. I mean, it's not like I go gaga for every superhero movie. You know, like I thought the last Thor movie was fun, not a masterpiece, but it was fun and it delivers in a way that I think has been kind of interesting from a Marvel standpoint. The and way the they tone is very it. different in this one. But, they, yeah, they turn it into total, a Bond movie in the middle. It's sometime. very, it's actually, it's like kind of serious in parts. It has levity, but it, but it's got some big issues that it's working through too. Yes. And I also want to bring it back to Sundance for a second. It's the third film I've seen this year, in addition, alongside. Blind Spotting, which w did pretty well at Sundance, and um, Sorry to Bother You, which is a wacky satire that I really enjoyed, to take place in Oakland. So Oakland is kind of having a moment at the Indeed. movies. 
and they're all they're all movies that are about you know African American identity, and in the case of Black Panther, it's really African identity. But it's kind of interesting the way that it it's dealing with something like the mythology of Wakanda, this fictional country. It's something that is is it's really hard to to imagine a movie completely pulling that off. You know, almost years, like years, an Atlantis uh, or or a lost yeah. sort of like one of those. It's sort of like Strong a mix of. What's the name of that movie that 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 had Deborah Carr and st it's 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 like um, you know you go into the heart of Africa and find it, you know Lost Horizon in Asia you know yeah, if yeah, finding absolutely. a lost culture hidden somewhere except that in this case it's like the story is from the perspective of, of the people that there culture. yeah so which is, is is so crucial to it and and you can tell it's being made by somebody who has has taken a very intellectual approach to that I would say you know to manage expectations with this movie it is a superhero movie and it delivers but it's but it's it but it works one. it gets there especially towards the third act it's there there's it kind of you get this sort of dif different pieces start to be assembled and they do come together at the end i really enjoyed my michael b jordan he's, the way he steals he's sort it of, actually you know it's very interesting to see a, the kind of character that he plays here not turned into some kind of larger than life creature really you know he's like he's actually he's the stand-in for all the american uh african-americans in who are watching the movie which is a strange interesting perspective it's yeah it's, it's culturally it's very complex i it think is. people are picking this movie apart and so reviews aren't officially dropping till next week though they let us tweet about it but but i think what's what's going to be really fascinating to see so last year wonder woman was this huge Hit and there was you know all this all these celebrations of you know female superhero and all that stuff. Um, it was a pretty good movie too, which helped. I think this is much better. Um, just overall, it's just a stronger film, and and it's it's kind of interesting because Wonder Woman had such a powerful kind of conversation around it. I'm curious to see if there is a similar kind of groundswell that lasts the way that it lasts. You could argue that both films are are are, are actually. <laughs> Kind of equivalent, but because they're 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 filling a need that has been long uh, gaping in in the in the marketplace, if you like, a, a void that needed to be to be filled in both cases. Um, and luckily, there are more movies coming down down the pike that that will hopefully fill fill these needs uh, more frequently. I just I'm curious to see. I mean, I know Ryan Coogler has another movie that he's working on already with Michael B. Jordan, and it's not going to be a superhero movie, and that seems like a smart move. The next kind of big moment, I guess, it'll be the Wrinkle be, in Time um, too coming. A Wrinkle in from Time from Ava yeah. DuVernay. So Wrinkle in Time will be the next thing, right, big that, hundred million saying, dollar movie. Yeah. So that's that's a huge thing. So it'll be interesting to compare and contrast the kind of dialogue around those two movies and how much those filmmakers want to remain in that world. I mean, we already know that Ryan is, is, is now taking a step beyond it a little bit, but, you know, it's a question of, you know, we've, we had this narrative a couple of years ago of certain kinds of independent filmmakers being snatched up by the studio machinery and making big movies with mixed results. Now we're seeing that on kind of like the diversity front. And the question is, how much, if you can do a, a good movie on this level, do you stay and do that? And I think that's going to be kind of an open question now. Oh, it'll be interesting to see what, what Ryan Coogler does. The other thing about Marvel 
I mean, I guess the other thing that this movie proves is that if you have enough support and you have a system behind you, you know, and that level of spending and that level of, of, of infrastructure, um, you know, there's a lot of arguments for why women should be given that kind of support in the Lucasfilm or the Marvel universe. Oh, and, yeah. And, uh, and there's all sorts of ways that, the, you know, men get the support. Why can't women and people of color get the support? And, and that's what's going to go on. Uh, this, this debate will continue to, to go on as pressure is applied to someone like Kathleen Kennedy, uh, you know, to, to make these moves as well. Well, it's, it's really hard to get, get a handle on, you know, how much do, do these broader conversations about, you know, more balance to the kind of stories that are being put out there adversely reflect movies that kind of look like the old model. Like when a Han Solo movie, like one of the most max, masculine movie characters of the last several decades, uh, gets a new movie directed by Ron Howard. Like, is that going to be met in the wake of a, of a Black Panther enlightened film going world with a shrug because it just kind of looks outdated or does that still do these older kinds of I think they serve different stuff. constituencies these markets still still exist it's I, I think what you you know what's happening with Wonder Woman and Black Panther is that you have these starving demographics you know who who just aren't getting fed enough nutrition and and are dying to get and this they're material they're and big. and There's they're huge and and yeah. that's what's great about Marvel Marvel's like an, an old fashioned studio in an, in its own right like when I got the tour of their of their facility uh, over at Disney, that they, you know, they have their own uh, art department and people creating costumes for Captain Marvel, and you know, which got revealed recently. Uh, you know, Brie Larson and all her glory. You know, we yeah. are looking forward to you know sequels to Ant Man and all sorts of things coming from there, yeah. and they're all working on this stuff. And I, it's all I consistent. am. <laughs> I mean, it's interesting because with, with any, anything like this, you you just kind of brace for the bubble to burst, right? I mean, Pixar so far, was so making movies, and now Pixar. What's your least favorite Marvel movie? so far least favorite probably the second avengers movie because what happened there or the was, second iron man yeah the second iron man was 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 pretty bad too i mean there there have been a couple of them that are and a little i'm not unfit. a huge ant-man fan i know people yeah, do like that Ant -Man but was, i'm not it's okay i didn't have like a huge problem with ant-man i thought avengers was a very specific problem and i'm so curious to see the the one that's the the next uh uh civil war movie because what happened there is, is pretty clear. It's that you have a huge world that you've built up successfully, and, and the first Avengers movie was the accumulation of that, with all these stories coming together in one big movie, very delicately balanced by Joss Whedon and very satisfying, and then more stories come, and then another movie is carrying the weight of the last movie plus all these other stories, and it, there was, it just felt like there was no oxygen. It was like everything well, was being... Well, it all starts to get pixelated again, you know, and they're always yeah. introducing new characters. They have to introduce Spider-Man. They have yeah. to introduce the more Black The Panther. more characters, it, right. it gets harder. And, and also, there's the expectations get crazy, and you start to see this, like, simulacrum type of effect where it's like every movie is trying to get a little bit of that Marvel special stuff. Like, the second Guardians movie was okay, but it definitely was trying to sort of I thought of they did very well with that. And I have to say okay. Thor Ragnarok completely reinvented. They just went on an entirely well, different trajectory well, for that I one. like Thor Ragnarok because it's just a comedy. I mean, it, right. it is straight-up comedy, and it plays it for laughs really well. And, it, and, and it's a recognition of the fact that superhero stories can be patently ridiculous, and you don't have to offend people by going to those extremes. Right. 
You know, it's not like Star Wars, which is treated as a sacred cow. So if you try to improvise some jokes on set, people fire you. But there is you know? room in the Marvel Universe for letting a director like the Thor Ragnarok director have a real personality and let that infuse and change and direct the movie. It doesn't have to be, you know, cookie cutter at all. So we've been talking about superhero movies for like 10 minutes. Is anything going on in the awards front? I think something in Santa Barbara. Uh, well, it's kind of an interesting, um, uh, you know, intake of breath, you know, post nominations. Everybody's starting to line up their phase two, you know, uh, artillery, basically. Um, you know, the people who actually got nominated, now they have to try to win. And, you you know, everybody's, it's what's fun about it. I had one of those um conversations with the, uh, the Gold Derby and Deadline and Variety Oscar experts. We all got together and, and did a video and debated some of the categories. And it is fun to see, you know, is it the Shape of Water scenario or are there alternate scenarios, you know, where Lady Bird could win a few things or Get Out could win a few things. And, and uh, Three Billboards, of course, is going to win Francis McDormand and Sam Rockwell and, you know, Gary Oldman will get his. So it's all about, it's all about laying out the different um, narratives that are going to propel the race. Is there an inclusive narrative? Is there a zeitgeist narrative is there a way there's that like moonlight say, there's like repeats, five you know? guys there's like five zeitgeist narratives this year it's like there's so many it, it really feels it's like last year moonlight was the zeitgeist movie there's no question about it you can see in that was the one that was going clear. to unseat lightweight la la land if but anything then now was. it's like first of all I don't even know if there is a lightweight movie this year. Like you could say Lady Bird is light, but it's also this, you know, amazing movie directed by a woman. That's a very clear eyed perspective of what this young woman is going through. And it feels like a movie of the moment, get out a movie of the moment, also wildly entertaining in other kinds of ways. And then even, you know, wildly original. And I think that in a way, um, the originality of get out starts to over, uh, take perhaps uh, the degree to which as great as Lady Bird is, and you know I love it. Um, that that it it's some some people are saying that it feels more conventional, and and oh, Get Out yeah. is is the real auteurist uh, creation that comes from from someplace no one ever imagined. So Get Out is a spoiler for Shape. Now is that where we're coming at it from? We're looking at uh, Dunkirk too. Because well, it you has can't forget more nominations than, and it has but an editing nom. Both very few Get wins Out in any and of these. Uh, Lady Bird don't have editing nominations. Right, but but Dunkirk, unless I'm mistaken, it it really hasn't won anything in the other places it has, it's been nominated. It has an interesting. Um, there's a whole. There's so many different things about Dunkirk that make it an anomaly. It do, it's sort of like Lord of the Rings in the sense that it doesn't have acting or spotlight, which didn't have acting. That didn't mean actors didn't like it. It's just that it, it wasn't uh, able to to nail down individual uh, nominations because it was such an ensemble. And so I think that D- Dunkirk is sort of radical in its structure and its narrative structure, time codes, and and small little parts for actors that it, it isn't comparable to most Oscar movies. Right. Well, and it has a great a- deal of appeal to the crafts the way The Shape of Water does. Well, it's it's just going to be interesting to see because at this point, it's not it, unless some crazy news breaks about some entity in the race. It seems like it would be shocking to 
have some new development that would change the way that we're talking about these contenders. Well, we'll see the DGA this weekend uh, on Saturday, and they will uh, probably vote for Guillermo del Toro, who is a beloved figure, and he is the front runner, and I expect him to win director and picture uh, at the end of the day. But these narratives can change. We can see them change. as A lot of people are going to lose money on Oscar night. There's no question about that. (laughs) It's just a question of how much. And, and, and how far spread that, that, that loss is going to go. In any case, next week we will continue our countdown. We've still got a couple of weeks to go where we're sort of in this limbo and we can talk about DGA. Supposedly there's a new Clint Eastwood movie opening next week, so hopefully we'll get a chance to check that out. And Black Panther will finally be making its way into theaters and we can take a look at the box office. I don't know, and you're going to check out Fifty Shades Freed? That's the it's other, on my uh, screening schedule. <laughs> Well, if you go see it, then maybe I'll consider it. It's not exactly the kind of thing I tend to to squeeze into my my uh, very busy schedule. But very I, highbrow schedule. We'll we'll see. Sometimes I pull myself down to earth. So in any case, enjoy your re- weekend. I hope you're resting up from Sundance, and I'll talk to you soon. Bye, Eric. <laughs>